Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we have a very special guest in our midst. His name is Peter Piot. He's a well-renowned Belgian microbiologist known for his research into Ebola and AIDS. After helping discover the Ebola virus in 1976 and leading efforts to contain the first ever recorded Ebola epidemic that same year, Peter Piot became a pioneering researcher into AIDS. He was the founding executive director of UNAIDS and undersecretary general of the United Nations from 1995 until 2008. Under his leadership, UNAIDS became the chief advocate for worldwide action against AIDS, spearheading UN reform by bringing together 10 UN system organizations. During his career, Professor Piot has received numerous awards for his contributions to global health, including the Bloomberg Hopkins 100 Award, the Hideo Noguchi Africa Prize, the Prince Mehidol Award for Public Health and the Canada Gairdner Global Health Award. He was a 2014 Time Person of the Year and has published more than 550 scientific articles and 17 books, including his memoirs No Time to Lose, A Life in Pursuit of Deadly Viruses. Peter Piot has made a huge contribution to HIV and AIDS research and played a leading role in the global response to the AIDS epidemic, especially in Africa. Today, he's the director of the world-renowned London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Peter Piot, thank you very much and welcome to the podcast. Looking back at the early stages of HIV and AIDS, there is no doubt that enormous progress has been made. HIV is not a death sentence anymore and people living with HIV can uh, live a similar life than people who don't have HIV. Despite this progress, experts are warning that there is a danger of backsliding due to what they call complacency and an overemphasis on treatment at the expense of prevention. What is your view on this statement, uh, Peter? Is there really complacency? And are the experts right? We've made enormous progress in terms of fighting HIV. Fewer people are dying, so thanks to treatment, and fewer people are becoming infected, although 
there's still what six, seven hundred thousand people dying from you know from HIV infection, and uh, what one point six seven million mm-hmm. becoming infected. So the epidemic is not over by any means, but there is a huge risk of complacency, and I see it already. I see it already also in the fact that there is less money for dealing with AIDS, and there is a lot of uh, you know high risk behavior that. Uh, we see in many populations and because people are no longer dying, thanks exactly to, mm-hmm. to treatment. And also politically, uh, AIDS is no longer on the top agenda, uh, political agenda, economic agenda, where it was before. And I think that's an extremely dangerous situation because I know what will happen. What will happen is that more people will become infected and more people will die. So it's really important to kind of reset the response to AIDS and have a better balance between offering treatment for all those in need, and that mm-hmm. still is not where we should be. We still have to uh, go further, but also to emphasize much more and invest much more in prevention. Do you believe that people tend to forget mm-hmm. that HIV will be with us for generations to come? I've often said that HIV will be with us forever, basically, unless we find a vaccine that will wipe out HIV, but we're not there yet. So we have to live as individuals, as societies, with HIV. We need a long-term view. I mean, to start with, people on antiretroviral therapy for HIV, it's for life. We want people having life that is as long and as good quality as someone who is not living with HIV. Absolutely. But prevention is also for life and is uh, throughout society. So we need that long-term view. We, we should start thinking in terms of decades, and not just uh, the next year and the next next fiscal year. You have uh, said last year at the International AIDS Conference that we have to steer away from the uh, the end of AIDS is in sight rhetoric, because it's not supported by the facts. Now, as an HIV positive person, and I believe with me the entire HIV positive community, we are very very much interested in the prospects of, of a potential cure. Now, if I look at the conclusive evidence of USU, undetectable is untransmittable, meaning that a person with HIV cannot transmit the virus when the the viral load is undetectable, I would say it's just a matter of getting everybody on treatment and problem solved. Is that too simplistic? And how realistic or unrealistic is it really to get everybody on treatment? Well, theoretically, and also demonstrated in well-documented clinical studies, indeed, if you have viral suppression thanks to antiretroviral therapy, then you're not infectious. And, and that's, there's no doubt about that. However, there's a big difference between clinical studies in very well-defined populations and real life. And that can go from the fact that uh, people can't take their uh, treatment all the time. There are supply issues. We know that, that uh, treatment interruption is there or for other reasons that you know, it's it's really mm-hmm. daily life. I mean, I take statins and now and then I forget it, but that's okay. You know, Absolutely, there's no, yeah. not so much of a problem. It could be a problem with HIV. There is also growing resistance to antiretroviral therapy, to the, to the drugs. Fortunately, the pharmaceutical industry comes up with uh, new drugs. So that's, uh, you know, it's a race between resistance development of a virus that's extre- extremely smart and new drugs. We are not perfect uh, human beings. We are not robots. So we have to be very realistic. We can do better. We can have more people on treatment and with better compliance and all that. But we also need to make sure that 
people are in the first place are not getting infected. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's where old-fashioned things like condoms are still really very relevant. And nobody talks about condoms, but right? But where is the... You don't hear anything about yeah. condoms anymore. Um, there's, of course, PrEP, but when you look at the world, I'm looking at Africa, for example, there's only one country that is really doing reasonably well in terms of PrEP, and that's Kenya. Other countries, it's not there, it's too expensive, it's not part of the national programs, and there are many other things that we can do that are not doing, being done also because, you know, the investments are not there, because these things cost money. Yeah, absolutely. Just for the audience to explain, PrEP means pre-exposure prophylaxis, where people take uh, medicine, anti-retroviral medicine, before actually uh, yes. dealing in, in sex, sexual uh, activity, right? Right. And this pre-exposure prophylaxis um, is quite popular here in London. Uh -huh. Thanks to that, we have seen uh, quite a, a decrease, decrease in, in a number of new infections. Mm. But again, you have to think about it and uh, to, to take <laughs> it, course. and it has to be available. How far are we really from a functional cure and a vaccine against HIV, Peter, in your opinion? I think for the first time, I'm quite confident that we will have a vaccine that's at least partially uh, effective. There are trials going on, mm -hmm. both in uh, you know, heterosexual populations and in populations of gay men. The uh, results, from, particularly from animal studies and also immune response that we see, make me far more optimistic than ever before. However, that's going to take several years, Absolutely. if we are lucky, to bring that to the market. In terms of cure, I'm probably less uh, optimistic in the sense that we have a few people, a couple of people literally, who have been completely cleared of uh, HIV virus. And I think theoretically, it's definitely possible to do it. We, we, we've seen, we have the proof. But it's very complicated, extremely expensive. So if we find a cure for the time being, I don't see a cure that is going to be widely available. But what the good news is that we're uh, having now new developments in drugs, drugs that can be, you know, long acting, that you don't have yeah. to take yeah. every day. So I'm sure there will be major improvements, but Maybe, um, you know, treating HIV becomes something like living with diabetes. You take also your pills or, or with hypertension and so on. So, you know, the drugs will become ever better, easier for the patient to take, less side effects. So yeah. when you compare what we have today to uh, at the early stages of uh, antiretroviral therapy, starting in 1996, We've come a long way. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely a positive outlook for the future. And I'm going to keep yes. to that. Yeah. Now, in, the, in its 2018 annual report, UNAIDS talks about a prevention crisis. You already touched upon that. And it says that the success in saving lives has not been equally matched by uh, the success in reducing new HIV infections. It stays stubbornly high at 1.8 million on a yearly basis. Now, what, in your opinion, has led to an overemphasis on treatment at the expense of prevention? How can we make sure that HIV services are being provided to those people that need it the most? First of all, let's not forget that millions of people were dying from HIV, up to nearly 3 million per year. Mm -hmm. So this was, a, I would say, a humanitarian emergency. So I also, personally, I spent years of my life to make sure that uh, the price of antiretroviral drugs was affordable, uh, organizing programs and so on. For me, there was really a uh, kind of a moral imperative. When you have a, an effective treatment and that there were millions of people who would not have access to it, I found 
totally unacceptable. So absolutely. it is absolutely it was the right thing to do to make do everything we could to bring uh, antiretroviral therapy to those in need. And, and we're still not there. We still have a way to go for at least um, 10, good 10, 15 million people are in need of t- therapy and they don't have access. However, now that these programs are being rolled out and that well over 20 million people are on therapy, we need to make sure that we also make, invest far more in prevention. In other words, making sure people do not get infected with HIV. Because in the, in the long run, that's what we want, because then nobody will need antiretroviral therapy except those who are alive today yeah. and, you know, will need it until the end of their life and hopefully for a, a very good and long and fine life. The UN General Assembly has set an objective to reduce the new infections by 2020 to 500,000 cases per year. In addition, UNAIDS has the 1990 objective, which basically says that 90% of the people living with HIV are being diagnosed, 90% of, being di- of those being diagnosed uh, are on treatment, and 90% of those on treatment have an undetectable viral load. Now, looking at the facts, we are 18 months away from the 2020 goals. Would you say that the pace of progress um, is matching global ambition, or are we far off reaching those targets? It's very clear that we will not reach the uh, UN and UNAIDS uh, objectives of 500,000 people newly infected with HIV, by the end of 2020, uh, because now we are at like 1.6 million, 1.7 million. And I can't imagine that in one year we would see a drop by over a million. So I think we have to be realistic. There is progress, but it's slow. And also there are parts of the world where we actually see an increase in new infections, such as the countries of the former Soviet Union. There's an increase. And uh, the decrease is not as spectacular as we would have all hoped. So that's a, a problem. Now, where we've made good progress is actually on so-called 1990-90. But we should also realize what that means. 90% of 90% of 90% is 73%. So in other words, of, those, of people living with HIV, the goal is then to have 73% with viral suppression. Yeah, And that means that there are 27% who are not viral suppressed and who can continue to transmit. So that is uh, uh, the way to, to look at also um, that it's often the people who are the most marginalized, the hardest to reach for whatever reason, because it could be because homosexuality is illegal in the country yeah. or there's a very repressive policy uh, against drug or users. A high level of stigma. Stigma well. is a very big driver of non-access to treatment and hence also to continuing uh, transmission. So all this has to be addressed. Uh, it's possible to address it, but we see a decline in funding for HIV and that has to be reversed. Yeah. I'd like to touch upon this funding, Peter. Funding for HIV increased in 2017, but it was a one-time phenomenon. There is still a gap. People say, experts say it's 20% difference between what's available and what is needed, calculated at approximately $6 billion. Additional funding cuts would be catastrophic for the 44 countries that heavily rely on the international assistance for their domestic HIV responses. Now, a fully funded AIDS response is non-negotiable, is it? We shouldn't fool ourselves. The problem of it is so huge, the way to end it will require billions 
and it will require billions for many years to come. And if there is a drop in funding, or if it's not going up to where it's needed, we will see more infections, more deaths. It's not rocket science, that's the way it is. The handset is so important to make sure that AIDS remains on the political agenda, that the money is available, and that we also combat stigma as much as we can, mm-hmm. because that drives AIDS underground. Absolutely. I think it's a very powerful message to international donors, you know, to keep to keep their pockets open and, and, and fund research or whatever is needed for HIV and AIDS. Funding for HIV has increased in 2017, but it was a one-time phenomenon. There is actually a gap of 20% calculated by experts around 6 billion US dollars. Additional cuts in funding would be catastrophic for the 44 countries that heavily rely on international assistance for their domestic HIV responses. So what would you say to international donors that are thinking about cutting the funding and is a fully funded response to HIV non-negotiable in your opinion? We shouldn't fool ourselves. Without fully funding the AIDS response, we will see an increase in new infections and we will see an increase in people dying from from HIV. Mm -hmm. We will also see that the fantastic efforts that have been done to control this epidemic, to save lives, will be wiped out because people on treatment will no longer have access to treatment, develop resistance, die and so on. So the test this will be for me the replenishment of the global fund. Will it meet the targets, the goal of the Global Fund? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes, then I am confident that we will really make a huge difference and further roll back this epidemic. Okay. That's a very powerful message to international donors. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about AIDS and global health, Peter. Now, AIDS was exceptional in, in, in a sense that it was global. It was affecting young people that were not supposed to die and it was also ruining entire countries. In addition to that, you can also say that the response to HIV, the crisis, was also atypical because it went far beyond the medical community, and there was, an, there, there was a, the, the activist community and HIV-positive people getting heavily involved, right? So how has AIDS been a catalyst for the rise of global health as a multidisciplinary field of study and practice, in your opinion? The AIDS response, and I would say the AIDS movement, has really created global health in a sense. It has transformed how we deal with health. And I can give some examples. First of all, uh, it was driven by a very strong rights-based approach, respect for human rights in terms of, for example, uh, going against the stigma and discrimination of people living with HIV, but also the right to health and the right to uh, treatment. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would not accept that people with HIV in high-income countries could stay alive because there is access to to treatment because it's uh, the National Health Service or health insurance or whatever. And then people in poorer countries would just die like flies. No, that's not accepted. That's the first thing. Secondly, it brought together prevention and treatment. You know, um, that was uh, traditionally very separate. Here we have it brought it together. Thirdly, it was also, you know, many sectors work together. Um, not only the medical sector, because you can't deal with AIDS. It just... In a, as a medical problem, a lot had to do with, let's like, say, stigma in the workplace, so the labor, legal uh, aspects are there, uh, education, gender-based violence, and so on. So all this brought together, and that's what why UNAIDS was created, to have this multi-sectoral response. And also, I would say, it has really boosted research, 
in global health, in HIV, of course, and it attracted brilliant young researchers who, uh, you know, gave the best of themselves. And thanks to that, we have antiretroviral therapy, we uh, work on a vaccine, and so on and so on, mm -hmm. but also the social sciences. Mm -hmm. And to what extent do you think that the AIDS learning experience can uh, benefit the way we look at and treat the non-communicable diseases, such as mental health, cancer, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease? They're often described as the pandemic of the 21st century. The treatment of HIV experience, I think, has many lessons for dealing with chronic conditions that are now also becoming the main cause of morbidity, of, of ill health, and of mortality. In, in most parts of the world except for sub-Saharan Africa. And because for the first time, HIV has introduced, you know, an, a, a chronic uh, treatment. Mm -hmm. And uh, how to do that, we didn't really know in many uh, environments. And we can learn from that. But we can also learn from, some, from HIV in, in another way. And that is that we should not design programs. We should not dream of knowing that we know everything, you know, without involving people living with HIV. And I think we need to do the same thing. You know, when you deal with mental health programs, which is a, a problem all over the world, listen to people, let's talk. And the, the programs will become better, but also we'll make sure that they're relevant and the people will appreciate, but also will be uh, giving ideas that, you know, we can learn from. Yeah, it's actually amazing how a global epidemic can eventually also result in something beneficial for uh, to treat other diseases, right? Yeah, the AIDS response has really changed the world and, and certainly the world of health, no doubt about yeah. that. Now, I'd like to touch upon probably the most important topic of this entire campaign, which is HIV and stigma. Now, HIV has become a chronic disease, and we already mentioned that a person living with HIV on treatment can very much live a normal life. Yet, you see that depression and anxiety amongst people living with HIV are widespread, I would even say on the rise. And in my opinion, this is not a picture that does make a lot of sense. So how would you explain this apparent paradox? And why is it that people have such <coughs> difficulties with their status and with disclosure as a, as, a, as a general aspect? When antiretroviral therapy became widely accessible, I had the hope that stigma and discrimination would disappear, that this would become like normalized to say so, because it's a treatable condition. But that, unfortunately, has not happened. I think in many societies, it, there is far more acceptance of uh, people living with HIV, but not everywhere. And there's still a lot of hidden suffering and discrimination. And I think that that's probably because it's often about something else. It's moral judgment. People did not behave uh, as the, uh, the official... Morally not morals, accepted. Morally not accepted. You know, that's one aspect. A lot has to do with uh, attitudes to sexuality, particularly homosexuality, many uh, cultures. And sex workers um, probably as well. Sex work and so on. So uh, I think we must really proactively deal with the stigma and discrimination and not hope that it will go away spontaneously. Yeah. And on the discrimination side, you know, there are legal frameworks because discrimination is, you know, how you're treated in society, in the workplace, uh -huh. uh, even in the healthcare setting. There was a lot of discrimination uh, in the early days, today probably much less. Some of it was based on fear. I can get it also if I treat someone living with HIV, that would certainly play the role. But today that's not, a, uh, you know, I know no reasonable person uh, should be afraid of, of getting HIV just by touching yeah. someone. But stigma is in our head. That's very different. Stigma is 
you and there's know, a, also we, a lot of internalized stigma. The stigma is on the one hand for others, be it because people are different, we cannot accept, and then we're all our moral judgments mm -hmm. are there. But it's also self-stigma, and uh, you know, and uh, uh, dealing with lack of self-esteem, but also guilt feelings with stigma and so on. So it is a very complex uh, phenomenon, and I'm not a social scientist or a psychologist to understand, but I know that if we don't deal with it, then we make things worse, Absolutely. and uh, we will not solve uh, and, and end this uh, epidemic. I mean, it took me personally a very long time to deal with the internalized stigma. Yeah. I, I was not able to handle or confront my situation. But I've done so. I've done some hard work on myself over the last couple of years. And I can only hope that people living with HIV get to that same place because I feel completely free and liberated. And it's an amazing feeling. Now, what I also want to touch upon, Peter, is there have been several studies conducted over the last couple of years. It started with the Swiss statement in 2008. Then it was opposite tracts. There were the HIV prevention clinicals trial. Um, there was partner one and now partner two that was presented by Alison Roger in May this year. All these studies come to the same conclusion and the evidence is conclusive. Undetectable is really untransmittable. What is the significance, in your opinion, of this medical breakthrough, according to me, one of the most important ones in recent history, especially in regards to or within the context of, of stigma and, and prejudice and taboo? Well, it's very clear that if you have undetectable virus, viral load, that you're not infectious. And that makes total sense, because if there's no virus, you cannot transmit it. However, the virus stays in your body and in your cells. So if the treatment compliance is not continuous, then uh, it can pop up again. We always have to remember that in terms of stigma, it should help. Will it help? We don't know yet. And also, um, I would say that Knowing that you're undetectable is, should become easily accessible also. That you can test that, that you can, you know... Uh, to take the maybe, fear away, yeah? Yes, that I, I think we need to go to a culture and society where you can even check that yourself. Yeah, it's completely not? normalized. Yes, because we know that there are still many, many people on treatment who are not undetectable. And, and they also should know. And their partners should also know. Absolutely. So... It, it, it is uh, introducing a new dynamic and new questions as, as so often, but they should be solvable. Mm -hmm. I'd like to touch upon uh, the work you've done at UNAIDS. Now, UNAIDS is unique in the constellations of the United Nations. And um, mm -hmm. you set up the organization in 1996 to steal response, uh, to coordinate the response of HIV, towards HIV across uh, several UN agencies. What would you describe as your major, major accomplishments, uh, Peter, at the helm of UNAIDS? I had three objectives when I started with UNAIDS. One was to put AIDS on the world's agenda because it was not at all the case. We started in 1995. I think we, we succeeded in doing that from political forums, just the UN General Assembly, the Security Council, the African Union, the World Economic Forum, just name it. And why was that important? I thought because once it's there, then we can mobilize the money. You know, if something is not recognized as a top uh, issue in the world, you will not get the, the billions that we needed. Secondly, was to make sure that people can have access to life-saving therapy. Uh, when we started with UNAIDS, let's not forget, in, in 96, when treatment became available, it was about 14,000 US dollars per person per year, out of reach for most people in the world. Absolutely. And it took about 10 years before 1 million Africans had also access to this. 
So that was uh, really, I think, not only UNAIDS who did it, it was combined effort also, uh, Doctors Without Borders, you know, um, other academics and so on, and, um, and the pharmaceutical industry and, and, and many countries, but we got there. And thirdly, uh, in terms of UNAIDS, what I, as an objective was to bring people living with HIV to the table and so that we could be their voice, that we could hear what are their concerns, so that we could have also programs that were meaningful for the people, not mm -hmm. just meaningful for a bunch of experts. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, it's, not, it's no secret that UNH is going through a bit of a crisis at the moment. Some, some critics have even mm -hmm. questioned the usefulness of the organization. Now, in your opinion, what is the role that UNH will play in the near future? The AIDS epidemic is far from being over. There are still hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who die every year. So it is one of the biggest health problems of our time continuing. And also, let's not forget, we need to make sure that the 20 million plus people who are on antiretroviral therapy in the world, that 10 years from now, they will still be on therapy and have access. So it's a massive undertaking and also making sure there are no new infections. And I'm concerned if there would be no UNAIDS, who will speak up for uh, people living with HIV? Who will be the advocate? I mean, together with the Global Fund, I think it's they're really essential. And in an editorial, you know, Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, also made that case that um, if UNAIDS would be, you know, kind of be absorbed by another institution, mm -hmm. Um, it would be also the end of the AIDS response as we know it now. Yeah. Okay. I'd like to go back to your early days in Africa where you became known for combining community wisdom, local knowledge and behavioral aspects with biomedical science to create health solutions. This was an unheard of combination at the time. Could you elaborate a little bit on your modus operandi and how relevant is this for young researchers today? Of course, I'm a scientist by training and I'm fascinated by viruses and uh, what you can do about it and biotechnology and all that. But I've also learned, and sometimes the hard way, that if people are not feeling that they will benefit from it, if they feel that you're not listening to them, it won't work. Also, I often got good ideas from talking to people because if you have an epidemic or an infectious disease or, or anything else, People have an idea what it could be, and sometimes they may be wrong, sometimes they may be right, just as we experts. So I really am a strong believer in, you know, what in academia we say, the multidisciplinary approach. You need several disciplines. You need, of course, you need doctors, you need basic scientists, but you need also an anthropologist, you need social scientists, you need a lawyer, you need all that in order to promote health. And that's a basic principle of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Under our roof, we have the various disciplines that are required to improve health, to promote health. And we work together along the same project. Okay. It's not always easy, but it can work. Well, involving everybody is never easy, but I think it's yeah. the best approach to get yeah. anything uh, done effectively. Now, I have a last question for you, uh, Peter. You have written 17 books, among which One stands out, which are your memoirs, No Time to Lose. It's a candid and passionate account of a life pursuing and outsmarting deadly viruses. Now, in a world where discovery is rare, your discoveries have been described as beyond remarkable. Now, in the epilogue of your book, there's one thing that's, that struck me when I read it. You said that you keep being haunted by the question of what you could have done 
earlier and faster. You mm. know, when I read this, Peter, I thought about the last scene of Schindler's List. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Yes, yeah, so. Where Ben Kingsley and Liam Neeson, yeah. Ben Kingsley thanks now Liam Neeson, and uh, oh, he goes, a long time ago, yeah. he yes, takes okay. off the ring and he says, I could have saved two more people, and he goes to his car, I could have saved seven or eight more. Yeah. Like, I mean, given the enormity of what you've accomplished, is there really anything that you could have done differently? Yeah, I always uh, think that I should have gone the political way much faster. When I started with UNAIDS, I was more of an academic. I thought if people know, if we have the evidence, the rest will follow. And that was naive. And uh, and I'm, I was often upset how many institutions, many individuals did not take up their responsibility and uh, were more interested by their institutional entrenchment rather than saving lives. And I'm not sure whether I would have succeeded, but I always feel that I fell short and I could have done more. Mm. Well, I feel that you're a very humble person, Peter, and I believe that true greatness is born in the realm of humility. And I think a lot of people could learn a great deal from you. And I would like to thank you as an HIV positive person for everything you've done for the HIV and AIDS community in the world, and especially uh, your exceptional leadership when the world needed it the most. So thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been an thank honor. Thank you. Thank you. We'll continue. Eh? Uh, don't give up. Okay. Thank you so much, thank Peter. You. All right. So, yes, a massive thank you to Peter Piot for coming on this podcast and for sharing his views with our audience. This has truly been an outstanding interaction with lots of insights from one of the world's most renowned experts in the field of HIV and AIDS. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group, specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. And let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels and on our website www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you and so does the world. Thank you so much.